0: Our our first reading tonight is from Psalm 103, verses 1 to 12. Uh, You can find in the Pew Bibles on page 595. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He has made known his ways to Moses His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbour His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. The second reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to chapter 9, verse 1. It's on page 999. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what do you say about you? But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power.
1: not so good is it good evening Just try and get a little bit organized here seems that that's not working so well sorry to whoever owns that glockenspiel well good evening how is everyone this evening good excellent Well, we have a great passage before us this evening, a really, really wonderful passage, and I'm really looking forward to looking at it with you. So let me pray as we come to God's Word. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the great privilege we have of gathering in your name to look at your Word, and we pray that as we do, that you would speak to us, that our hearts would change, that our lives would change, and that you draw us close to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Rod has already mentioned, This chapter is a significant chapter in Mark. It's kind of a pivotal chapter. Uh, It's been building up to this for a while and we learn who the disciples have been following. And Jesus has two things to say here. He says, I'm the king, but I'm a king who's going to the cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross as well. You've got to come to the cross too. Let's pick the story up in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man. Now, this has been happening consistently throughout Mark. People have been bringing people to Jesus. This is not unusual at all. Uh, People have heard of Jesus. They've heard of what he's been doing. We're talking about sort of up the north of Israel here. Uh, He's been in the area before people would know that he's been involved in hearing. Um, healing he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village it's it's actually just a beautiful moment isn't it jesus and the way he treats people throughout mark is just so careful and just so uh, intimate he cares about particular people he's not just treating them as a another person who needs healing he he cares about particular people And when he goes to heal people, you notice that he doesn't have a grand, like a wand or some kind of incantation. It's just a very gentle thing. And see what happens here? He led him outside the village and then he spit in the man's eyes. And he put his hands on him. And Jesus says to him, do you see anything? Now, in some senses, that's a really strange question because throughout Mark, as Jesus has healed people, they've just been healed. But here, we have this picture of Jesus asking the question, do you see anything? And in fact, the man answers this way. He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Now, I know exactly the problem he's having. I'm having great difficulty without my glasses at the moment. So when Jane asks me what the weather is tomorrow and I look it up on my iPhone, I say, well, it could be 26, it could be 23, or it could be 28. I can't tell between the numbers. It's like I'm seeing trees walking. But hang on, this is is Jesus, the one who's been healing everybody, been making a huge difference. Did his power somehow not work? It seems odd, doesn't it? Now, there are other instances in the Bible where it seems to take time for healing to take place. Think of Naaman who had leprosy in the Old Testament. He has to go and bathe seven times. And in fact, earlier on in Mark, there's that story of the deaf man and Jesus puts his finger in his ears and then on his tongue. There's sort of a two-step there. But this seems really odd, doesn't it? And so Jesus once more puts his hands on the man's eyes and the man's eyes are opened and his sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly. Now, I have no doubt this is a real story, and this really happened. I have no doubt that Jesus did things this way. But I think Mark has placed this here for a particular purpose. And I think Jesus healed this man in this way for a particular reason. He wanted us to understand something about seeing about the way we see. And that becomes fairly evident as we read on in the Gospel of Mark in terms of what takes place, uh, particularly with his disciples. Come with me to verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's further north. Um, If you're familiar with the map of Israel, it's right up the top. It's actually a beautiful, luscious area. Uh, I've drunk water from there. It's quite nice. Uh, It's a a kind of lovely area. Um, Jesus is up at uh, Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, which is not the same as Caesarea, which is on the coast. It's a different place. And on the way, he asks, who do people say that I am? And of course, uh, people have been saying all kinds of things. Uh, They've noticed that Jesus is a remarkable man. And they're beginning to link him with Old Testament prophets and Old Testament people. And they say, Elijah, John the Baptist and others the prophets. But then Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, this is a very significant moment in mark it's as if we are sitting here thinking finally they're starting to understand what is taking place finally the disciples have some insight into what's taking place now of course this is against a backdrop of the kind of expectations that people would have had about a Christ an anointed one a messiah Uh, At the time there were things like uh, the Song of Solomon or the Psalms of Solomon rather and in that particular Psalm uh, written around the same time as Jesus we read this Behold O Lord, raise up unto them their king, the son of David and gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers and that he may purge Jerusalem from the nations that trample trample her down to destruction. The point, of course, being that uh, the Romans had overtaken Jerusalem. The people of Israel were very distressed about this and they were looking for a Messiah, a Christ, a king who would come and rescue them. Now, I wonder if Peter had that kind of view because it's interesting to notice what takes takes place next. Jesus has to teach them. See that in verse 31? Jesus begins to teach them. Began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and that he must be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now it's clear that Peter had a very different image of who Jesus was saying he was. Jesus has just said he's the Christ and then he said, well, this is what the Christ will be like. And Jesus treats him particularly harshly. Have you noticed that in verse 33? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's the kind of language he's used throughout Mark to rebuke demons. This is a very powerful rebuke of Peter. He's saying, basically, Peter, you do not understand. It's like you see trees walking. It's like that your sight, you're still blind. You really haven't seen what's going on. You really haven't understood what's taking place here. You haven't understood what it means when I say, I am the Christ. Because when I say, I am the Christ, I am the king, I'm going to be a king who goes to the cross. That's my journey. That's my kingship. Look at what I said. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be killed. Jesus is saying here is if, if he's going to be the Messiah, if he's going to be the king, if he's going to be the great rescuer of this world, of these people, he must be killed. He must suffer many things. Why? Well, as many of you would know, the Christian story is a story of our rejection of God. Our rejection of God to the extent where we've got no hope a rejection of God that means that we are indebted to God and we have a debt with God that we are unwilling to recognise and unable to pay. Now, you know how debts work, don't you? I remember once, um, I might have told you this story before, but I was about 19 and I was asked to uh, drive my boss's wife's car It was a hot day, the car was large and as I backed my boss's wife's car out I managed to scrape it all down the side against another car. I was terrified. Something had gone wrong, someone had been wronged and there was a debt to pay. Who was going to pay the debt? It was going to be either me or my boss. So I went to my boss and said, look, I'm terribly sorry. I've scraped your wife's car. I'm willing to pay. My heart's... And he just says, that's okay, Roger. You've been honest. I'll pay for it. I forgive you. I was absolutely astounded. But you see what happened there? Something went wrong and there was a debt to pay. Someone had to pay the debt. It was either going to be me or him. And he said, and I still don't know why, I'll pay the debt on your behalf. What's taking place here is Jesus is saying to make all things right, to make all things new, I am going to be paying that debt. I must be killed. I must suffer many things in order for the debt to be paid on your behalf. And it's just a wonderful gift, isn't it? We have a debt with God that we are unable to pay and unwilling to pay. And God says, I'll do something about it. I'll send my only son into this world and he will be killed in order that your debt is paid and you are set free. It's just most wonderful news. It's a gift of God's grace to us. But Mark doesn't leave us there, does he? Because he says, yes, Jesus is the king and a king going to the cross. But he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross too. See, it's more than just an intellectual assent we're being called to here. It's more than just recognizing who Jesus is, sort of in the distance, and saying, oh, "Well, I think He's King. Yeah, I can, I can sort of acknowledge that. He's done some marvelous things." Now, to see clearly, to see actually what's going on, Mark says, "Actually, there's something more." And we hear Jesus in verse thirty-four, calling to the crowd, calling, uh, calling to the crowd, and his disciples, and he says. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus calling us to here if we want to recognize him as the king? He says you must deny yourself. Now, of course, our first thought at that particular point is to say, oh, okay, we've got to forget about our indi- indi- individual selves. We've got to kind of forget about us altogether. Uh, in some senses, we've got to become one with everything. And that's kind of an Eastern way of approaching this, to forget ourselves, to become one with everything else, to kind of move beyond ourselves. Now, I'm not sure that that's what Jesus is calling us to here. And I think the clue here is in what it says about life. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What does that mean? What does it mean to lose your life for the sake of the gospel? Because that will tell us what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and daily follow Jesus. Well, we hear it explained for us in verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Every culture, every society has a way of measuring success. It has a way of saying, you've made it. You've gained the whole world. We recognise you as having made it. Now, in more traditional societies, it's things like respectability and family. You've made it if you look respectable, if people around you respect who you are, respect your family, if you've got a good family. You've made it. You've gained the whole world. In less traditional cultures and societies, it's more to do with love and money and recognition and status and acceptance for who you really are. If only I could be accepted for who I really am, then I will have gained the whole world. Then I will have made it. If only I get enough money that people look at me and say, wow, isn't he wonderful? Isn't she wonderful? If only I had enough money to do whatever I wanted to, I will have gained the whole world. My identity would be secure. Everything would be right. Each culture calls us to gain the whole world in a different way. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, what I want you to do is to lose your life for me and for the gospel in order to save it. I want you to build your life and identity on me. I don't want you to look at you. I want you to look at me. I want you to follow me. I want you to serve me. I want you to make your decisions about your life on the basis of what I've called you to do. I want you to look up from yourself and look at me. And of course, that has all kinds of implications for us, doesn't it? What does it mean to lose our lives, to follow Jesus, to, to be involved in the gospel? Well, for some of you, It will mean at this point in your life you say, actually, that means I need to put other things aside. I need to go and study some more and I want to go into full-time ministry. And some of you are sitting here tonight thinking about that. That's a perfectly valid way to give up your life for the gospel. And it's a wonderful way to do it. Some of you, of course, may say, well, actually, I'd like to work part-time and I'd like to to be involved in a church part-time. I'd like to sort of mix it up a bit. Well, that's a perfectly valid way to serve God as well, to lose your life, to deny yourself. But, of course, God might also be calling you to work that out in the place that He's placed you right now, in the workplace, as you study. God might be saying to you, actually, I want you to follow me to lose your life right where you are. Lose your life for me right where you are. Now, that sounds pretty difficult to do, doesn't it? And I think we need to do some serious thinking about what that actually looks like. Uh, Just recently, I've been reading through a book and I'm just... Um, working my way through it a, a timothy keller book called every good endeavor which is looking at how christians should work in the workplace and one of the statements that's made in the book is this one the purpose of work is to create a culture that honors god and enables people to thrive i'm quite attracted to that imagine being in a workplace and that's your goal for what you do Help people develop a culture that honours God and enables people to thrive. That could shape your whole life. That could be God-honouring. That be, could be laying down your life, denying yourself. That could be taking up your cross and following Jesus. Now, I think there's a lot more things to be done and I encourage you to get a hold of that book. You can get it down. You can download it on Kindle. You can go and buy it at wrong. There's plenty of places you can get it. I think it's really worth the read if you want to think through what it actually means to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus in the workplace. But I want to say to you tonight, whatever God calls calls you to, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death the death of your own ambitions and wishes every day with every fibre of your being and you will find eternal life in Jesus. Keep nothing back. Let Jesus into every room of your life. Open every door. Submit to him. For if you look to yourself, in the long run, you will only find hatred and loneliness and despair and rage, ruin and decay. But if you look to Jesus, you will find him and in him so, so much more. Please, lose your life to him. Take up your cross and follow him. Jesus is the king, a king who went to the cross for us. And if you want to follow him, you've got to come to the cross too. I invite you to do so tonight. Amen.